Welcome to the Creative Endeavor Podcast. This is the podcast bringing you inspiring stories from creative professionals from around the world. It's real conversations with real artists. And I'm Andrew Tischler, and it is such a pleasure to have your company here once again. Thank you for joining me. In this episode, episode 50, can you believe it? We're already at episode 50. I'm talking to Virgil Elliott. I couldn't think of anybody better to share this episode slot with me. And you might remember Virgil from back in the day. He was episode two of the podcast. He had so much to share with me back then. It really represented quite a paradigm shift for me in my technical approach to oil painting. And this conversation was no different. I got so much out of it. Now you know the drill. Get the coffee on, wash those brushes, get ready to go in the studio. And also while you're at it, get a notebook because you're going to want to take some notes for this episode. And I'll be right back with Virgil Elliott. Now, some years ago, I picked up this book called Traditional Oil Painting by Virgil Elliott. And as I was thumbing through the pages, I soon realized that there was a lot about oil painting that I just didn't know. My technical approach was all over the place and I really needed to hone in on the material and the science behind oil painting. There's a lot of things that we do as artists that have catastrophic effects over the years. After we put on our last strokes of color, sometimes the things that we've done in the studio can really lead to a product that just doesn't last and endure the ages. I'll give you an example. Did you know that using zinc white can completely destroy your oil paintings? It can lead to cracking, crawling, delamination. How about a color like alizarin crimson? A color that's completely fugitive. It's not light fast at all. The warm colors and some of these delicate passages that we put into our paintings, that can completely fade over time with just exposure to UV. So there were a couple of these things that I didn't have plugged in way back in the day. It's by learning these things, and a lot of this I got from Virgil Elliott, his teachings in his book, but also that private Facebook page by the same name, Traditional Oil Painting. There's so much that I got from him, and it really profoundly changed my approach to painting. I really enjoyed that conversation back back in the day, episode two, and I had to have him come back on the podcast and really pick up where we left off. There was a whole chunk of this conversation where we were talking also about the old master's approaches to oil painting and some of the things that we can take from their studio practice to make us better artists today. And then, of course, you couldn't have somebody like Virgil on the podcast without geeking out about the material side as well. And there are a few new things that he had to share with me here. Now, right now, you're listening to the audio version of the podcast, but there is an exclusive video version of this podcast, and it's only available on my Patreon page. So you'll find that by clicking the link in the description that accompanies this episode. 
In addition to the video version of the podcast, you're going to find exclusive critique videos, Q&A videos, reference packs, and also extra special time lapses that I don't upload anywhere else. There's more content there than you can shake a brush at. There's so much content that I'm uploading week to week, and it's only five bucks a month. So if that sounds like you, it'd be a pleasure to have you over there on the Patreon page. You'll find that link once again in the description that accompanies this episode. In addition to that link, you're also going to find a couple of links to some of the things that Virgil's up to. First, he's got a new video out with Lilidol Productions. You'll find a link to that in the description, as well as the new edition of Traditional Oil Painting, his famous book, something that is an absolute essential for me in the studio. I'm constantly referring to this. So you'll find that right now in the description that accompanies this episode. So without further ado, let's bring him on. Here's Virgil Elliott, episode 50 of The Creative Endeavor. Virgil Elliott, what a pleasure to have you back on the Creative Endeavor podcast. Welcome. Well, thank you. And thanks for having me back. I'm very, very happy you haven't forgotten about me. Oh, never. How could I? Uh, so as we were talking just before, before I started the recording, um, I, I've been following you for a long while. You were number three uh, on the podcast. I uh, should have been number one. I'm really sorry about that, by the way. But uh, I forgive you. <laughs> But I've, I, you know, since reading your book and I'm continually referring to it and also following along with that traditional oil painting page, I keep pointing people in that direction. And a lot of the stuff that I, I, I also, I hope you don't mind, a lot of the stuff that I'm teaching, particularly when it comes to, you know, I got that zinc white out of there. I got the lead white in there. So now that's the Good. big component of, of my painting practice and, and limiting the amount of medium. Um, I haven't completely turned my back on the medium, so I, I wouldn't mind getting into a bit of that technical shop talk. But um, why don't we just kick things off? Uh, we, we already kind of have a, a picture of your backstory. So I want people to go back and listen to episode three of the podcast and hear that. So we'll just basically add on to that. But in the, maybe it's been two or three years since we spoke last, how's it all been going? What's, what's been happening in your world? Well, let's see. I went to uh, Austin, Texas a, about a year ago and uh, I recorded a, a, an instructional video uh, called The Principles of Visual Reality, which is the same as the, one, the title of one of the chapters in my book. And uh, so I covered as much of that as I could in the time that they allowed me. And it, it's uh, been released on Lily Doll publications. Anyway, uh, I had intended to do that a year before, but then this COVID-19 stuff came up and that, that uh, interfered with many things. So I, I drove in a pickup truck all the way from California to Texas and back. And uh, so... Anyway, that, that is out now, and so I hope we can plug that to your, your readers. And what else I've been doing? Well, it, it, mundane things like painting portraits, and uh, most of the painting I've been doing has been commissioned portraits. I've got another painting that I started about six years ago that I still haven't finished because I keep having to set it aside 
to work on portrait commissions. Yeah. And actually that one started out as a commission, not for a portrait, mm-hmm. but uh, this very astute collector asked me to describe for him the ideas of the paintings that I wanted to paint, my own ideas. I described several to him and he chose one and uh, gave me a deposit to get started on it. And I got going on it and I got about, oh, uh, two thirds of the way through. And then uh, he told me, oh, you know what? My, my wife doesn't like that one. Oh. <laughs> and uh, so I said, well, choose another one. And so he chose another one and I painted it. And he was very happy with that. His wife likes it, so they're happy. And I still have a a painting that's not quite finished here that I started as a commission that stopped being a commission. So uh, I'm almost done with it. I just, I need to find, uh, I need to have my wife pose for me again because she's being the lead character. It's a scene of the stage. Mm -hmm. And uh, I had her face in there, but I looked at it for a while and I thought, you know, it'd be better if I had her head turned. And so I've got to get her over here to pose for me again in the same lighting. Right. The problem is, is that when I started that, I was in a different studio and the lighting was different there. So I'm going to have Mm -hmm. to reproduce that lighting so that it's consistent with everything else in the picture. So that's a complicated affair. And uh, so I scraped out the face that I had already painted. It was a good face, but I realized it'd be a better, better picture if her head was turned. Mm -hmm. And so... Mm -hmm turned more rather turned the other way and 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 more extreme you know it's a more dynamic pose and it works better with the composition that way so uh that's about the only thing i've been working on other than portrait commissions and i'm happy to have portrait commissions i'm paid well enough to make it worth my while to do it and uh, apparently i i don't do too bad a job of it so <laughs> that's brilliant people think brilliant. that anyway I want to I want to just um, a, a couple of little roads we can go down there, but um, I, I, I'm intrigued by that title, and I'd love to pick that apart and explore that idea with you. The principles, uh, the principles of visual reality. Okay, so, good. so, so, tell me about this film, and, and tell me about you know what, what what the idea is there. That sounds so intriguing. Well, uh, you've read the book. Haven't you? Yeah, I'm sure you have. Of course. So the principles For of visual reality, though. this mm-hmm. is something that every artist who intends to create the illusion of three dimensions on a two-dimensional surface, which is what we do when we paint pictures, unless we're abstract expressionists, which I don't want to discuss at all. Uh, <laughs> yeah, okay. Uh, me too. <laughs> we won't go down there. Okay. Yeah, yeah. So to create the illusion of three-dimensional space, we have to understand the principles of visual reality. So those principles in the order in which I listed them in my book are uh, geometric perspective, which is sometimes called linear perspective. I prefer the term geometric perspective because it's really more like geometry. Uh, Linear, that refers to line. And yeah, we use lines in in, in working it out. Uh, But I think, I mean, excuse me, Geometric perspective is a more appropriate term for it. And the second one, second principle of visual reality is atmospheric perspective. And which, as you know, is the way the atmosphere affects images, depending on how much atmosphere is between 
that plane or object and our eyes. And so that just explains how, how images are altered by distance because there's in greater distance, there's more atmosphere to be seen through. And um, then there's another principle, the principle of selective focus. And that is based on the way our vision works. Our vision consists of two eyes connected to a brain. And the eyes are very good instruments, much better than any camera yet, yet invented. And it sends the brain a great deal of information. And the brain has to edit that information in order to allow us to concentrate and to understand what we are observing. Uh, without that, we would see, you know, cacophony, you know, and if I haven't pronounced that correctly, sorry. <laughs> but anyway, uh, in order to be able to focus on whatever it is that's most important, our mind uses the its understanding of what is and of greater importance in the scene that we're looking at and what is of lesser importance. And it, it uh, edits things out. It simplifies things that are of uh, lower level of importance within the scene. And, that, and so we have to follow that principle when we're creating our paintings, if we want them to give the impression of reality. And this is the principle that's probably least understood uh, in our time. Now, the old masters, the best of them anyway, understood it very well. I would say the first artist who demonstrated in his work the uh, a supreme understanding of that principle was Rembrandt. And the second one that comes to my mind would be uh, Johannes Vermeer. And um, others have understood it to some extent, but haven't employed it with as much mastery as Rembrandt and Vermeer. And so uh, my, my study of that principle really comes more than anything else from my study of those two painters. I mean, I've studied everyone, you know, I'm very old and I've been studying art all my life, you know, so uh, um, that's the way I read it. It's, it's they understood selective focus better than anyone else and they incorporated it into their paintings more effectively than anyone else. Since then, there have been a few others who, who have done very well with it. And uh, I won't mention names of living artists. Uh, I prefer not to because then whoever I haven't mentioned might feel slighted, but I know a lot of artists. Mm -hmm. But anyway, um, and then the, the fourth principle of visual reality is the nature of light. And that's simply based on the way form is revealed through the distribution of light across the surfaces. That, that's, um, that's actually the first time that I've heard it, you know, in that way, that selective focus. I mean, because when we look at photography and photography's influence on painting, in particular, what's, what's happening, you know, today, and I, I, for one, I mean, I'll be the first to admit that I've been really heavily influenced by photography. Um, it can be, you know, the tendency for me is to like put every single detail in, and that's really not the, the, the principle of selective focus. So is this a compositional consideration as well as a technique? consideration yeah. i mean uh, my, my mind just kind of goes okay 
well, just apply more of the working or the more of the, the handling and paint manipulation and all of those really nice little bits of, you know, painterly garnish, just put, focus that on the, on the primary focus and, and let the rest kind of bleed away. Um, how, how would you apply that? Am I thinking in the right terms? Well, yeah, yeah, I suppose so. It, it, it's, as I see it, it's, it's a very advanced concept. Mm -hmm. uh, but if we understand it and we engineer the situation, we can really lead our viewers through the painting. Uh, the things that bring the viewer's attention to themselves first are things where the focus is sharper. That means we will have sharp edges selectively applied. We don't want to have them everywhere the way a camera would see them, wherever it's focused, everything's in sharp focus within the range that the camera is adjusted for. That's not the way our vision works though. Our vision works where, let's, let's use the example of a human face. Now, if we're pointing a camera at a human face and we adjust it so that that face is in sharp focus, the hair on the head is also in sharp focus. And if we paint it that way, that creates a certain amount of confusion in the viewer's mind as to whether or not the face is more important or the hair is more important. Our mind knows the face is of greater importance. So the right way to paint the hair in a situation like that is not the way the hair looks when we're focusing our, our vision on it, but the way it looks when we're focusing our vi vision on the, on the face. So we will see the hair somewhat out of focus. And because hair is a soft mass, the edges between itself and the background and between itself and the forehead have to be a soft edge, varying degrees of softness. Whereas the camera might read the transition between the hair and the background as a sharp edge because it's in the sharp focus range of the camera. But to paint it and make it look realistic, if you'll study the way the old masters, in particular Vermeer and Rembrandt, have rendered those things, very soft transition. And that's done by painting the hair and the background, at least where they meet, with wet paint on both sides. And overlapping a bit from the hair into the background with one brush, and then with another brush that has the, the background color on it, overlapping back into the hair and going back and forth until you've got the right degree of softness. And, and it should vary. You don't want it to be uniformly soft nor uniformly sharp. You want to vary the edges so the focus is coming in and out. And uh, that's something we learn by studying the old masters more than anything else, I think. You know what you're doing for me? You're, you're kind of, you're highlighting to me that I, I'm reminded of this comment that I, I actually get a lot. And I know there will be painters that are listening to this right now uh, that would have heard this too. And that's from somebody who doesn't paint, looking at your paintings going, why don't you just take a photo? <laughs> and I just, uh, the amount that's of times- That's one of the I, things why. And that's one of the reasons and that's, why. And that's why, because the camera doesn't seem to even- pick it up. I mean, look, even if you're shooting with a 50 millimeter lens and you have this kind of camera artifact called a bokeh or a baka, which is that selective soft focus, it's still very uniform in the way that it's out of focus. And it's, it's very mechanical, but with, through a painter's hand, 
I, I, I'm still convinced that, the, that a painter could create a better, I'm not saying I can do it, okay? But I'm just saying a painter, it, like a brush in the hands of the old masters can create a more visually pleasing image than a camera. There, I said it. Yes, I, I, absolutely. <laughs> and, that's, and that's a goal that we should strive for. Yeah. You know, if we can make it look more real than a photograph, you know, people say, oh, you know, they think they're complimenting us by saying, oh, yeah, that looks just like a photograph. And I, I know they mean it as a compliment. They're just expressing their ignorance of the difference. Mm -hmm. And uh, so I don't, I don't usually argue with them unless I can see that maybe they're receptive to learning something new. Um, but, uh, you know, maybe sometimes I'll say, well, I hope it actually looks like reality. That's what I'm striving for. Isn't but that interesting? That's almost a, a there cultural... There should be differences between paintings and, and photographs anyway. Sure. I mean, there's no reason why they should both have to conform to the same aesthetic standards. They're two distinct, different kinds of image, and they should remain so. You know, this is why I have an objection to photorealistic paintings where you've got a head five feet tall, you know, or three feet tall or something. That's, that's a blow up. That should be in the exclusive province of photography. That's perfectly legitimate in photography. But when we paint a head larger than it really is, in order for it to appear real, we have to create the illusion that that head is closer to the viewer's eye than the canvas is. Mm. Now that's a very difficult illusion to create. It's not impossible because I've done it and I know it is possible. When I did it, I did it intentionally because I was demonstrating before a large group of people in a large room and I wanted the people in the back row to still be able to see what I did. And I, I, I was able to do it effectively, but it's a terrific challenge and it's unnecessary. To make something feel like it is real it, the image should not be larger than the actual object, whatever it might be. Slightly smaller gives you the impression that the canvas is not there. It's a window that we're looking through and we're seeing that person or that subject or that scene, whatever it might be. When we paint it bigger than life, we have to bring it forward into, into the viewer's face. And uh, it's just not as elegant, in my opinion, for one thing. Mm. But uh, I. I am an advocate of having different standards for photography than for painted art. And I'm not an advocate of having the, the surface of our painting necessarily be absolutely smooth and, and free of texture because texture is something that does, when people get close enough and they can see it, uh, it does show them that it's the work of an artist. It's not the work of a machine. And uh, there are artists and, you know, some who are friends of mine who have a different opinion on that, and they're certainly entitled to it. And, um, but that's my impression, my feeling on, on the subject. Um, as I was trained a long time ago by my first teacher when I was a child, and this was like, you know, uh, 65 something years ago, 70 years ago, uh, I was told that it's better not to obliterate the evidence of the work that went into it. We want the painting from the proper viewing distance to appear like a three-dimensional scene with no brush strokes apparent from that distance. But then if people are intrigued by what they see at that distance, we want them to be drawn in closer. 
and they'll come in closer to see who painted the painting. They'll be looking for the signature and they might be examining little individual passages while they're there. And we want to leave a few brush strokes, a little bit of texture here and there, serving a descriptive function at the same time, not just being there to show off, hey, look at this, I'm real good with a palette knife or whatever, but it has to serve a descriptive purpose in the painting, but become detectable from a closer closer distance than the proper viewing distance. And this is this is what photographs don't have and what I think is is appropriate in a painting. And this is why I stopped short of carrying my paintings to the highest degree of finish that I am capable of doing. Uh, I, I, I don't want to obliterate that artistic element. People are pleased when they can investigate the scene and get some little clues as to how the artist created this image. You know, it's, it's, it's like when people see a magician on stage performing, uh, it's, they're trying to figure out how he's doing it, you know, and that's, that's what makes it interesting. And if they can get a little clue here or there, that's very satisfying to them, you know? Uh, so anyway, that's, that's a principle that I think is important. And not that I would impose my sense of aesthetics on the rest of the world. If I'm the only one that does that and does it effectively, then so much the better for me. But uh, that's the way I'm looking at it anyway. That's the way I've always looked at it because I realized that that advice that my first instructor, who was my mother, by the way, uh, gave me, it, 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 it seems to bear out. And uh, I, I, I've never, I mean, I question everything I'm told. But when something holds up after I've questioned it, then I, I uh, operate from that point on on the assumption that it was good information. And if it works, that's, that's the criterion for whether it's good or bad. It does work. I think, I think it works. Look at how many people love the work of John Singer Sargent because they can see brush strokes. You know? Now, that's not the way I would like to paint a portrait because I think that calls too much attention to the artist. So I, I, I don't try to create this illusion of bravado brushwork. In a portrait, people want to see an image that makes them feel like that person is still there, alive, looking at them, about to speak to them. To me, well, that's what Rembrandt did in the painting that impressed me the most. And I think I described that to you the last time we talked. You know, I saw that Rembrandt portrait when I turned the corner in that museum. And it was like a living man was looking out of that window, which was the frame of the painting, at me. I got the impression he had just moved. He had just, you know, he had a thought in his mind that he was about to express to me. He was acknowledging my presence. And this was the most eerie sensation because I knew that's a painting that's 250 years old. The man in the picture is dead now. The man who painted it's dead now and has been for a long time. But the impression was there is life there. That's, that's what I think a portrait should do. Because, you know, a lot of times I get hired to paint posthumous portraits, and that's a terrific challenge. But that's what people want. They want to feel like their loved one who is no longer alive, mm -hmm. their father, their grandfather, their wife, their son, their daughter, whoever it might be, is still with them. If they see a bunch of brush strokes at the proper viewing distance, that detracts from that impression. But 
I don't I don't look at look at, at other paintings that way. Only portraiture. Uh, other subjects. Each subject, I think, should have its own unique concepts uh, that the artist should be guided by. Whatever would make that particular painting most effective. But you know, for a portrait, you have to realize that's uh, that's a commercial endeavor. You know, we have to please the client. And the client wants to see their loved one and looking as alive as we can make it without any indication of ourselves being there with slapping paint around with a paintbrush or a palette knife. It's interesting that you say that about John Singer Sargent, because I've I've held him in such high regard, as, as I do Rembrandt and Vermeer, another artist that you mentioned earlier. Um, and Sargent definitely does have that, that signature kind of technique of just slapping that paint down. And when you see his work, without even seeing the signature, it's almost like you can go, that's Sargent. Like you, you could just tell right away. Another yeah. artist who kind of, or two actually, that kind of do that for me as well is Zorn and Soroya. You know, you yeah. look at them and it's a very, it's a very, uh, you know, loose technique. And for the longest time, I- There's I, one more. Go on. We, we, we shouldn't neglect to mention Cecilia Bull. Okay, right. Sometimes her work That's reminds me of Sargent. That's a new one for me. Um, I, I'm, I'm such an ignoramus when it comes to a lot of art from the past. Um, I'm getting better, though. I'm getting well, better. She was, she was uh, more or less contemporary with Sargent. Wow. Uh, Cecilia Bull, B-E-A-U-X, I believe is, is the correct spelling of her name. But, awesome. Uh, yeah, she was very good, and I think she deserves a uh, a larger reputation than she got. And in, in those days, uh, the attention was more on male artists. Right. Quite frankly, maybe being female kind of had people pay less attention to her uh, unfairly, as I as I will acknowledge. But uh, I think she deserves more credit. I, I I I'm a little confused as to how. I mean, because obviously I'm an artist and a teacher as well. And so I, I try to think about, okay, how can I communicate a concept to somebody else so that they may understand? Um, and, and I think that that really is, is you know, the, the, one of the most important things as a teacher is you can't explain something, something to somebody else um, that you don't understand yourself. Oh my goodness. I just had a George Bush moment. I'm trying to <laughs> fool me once, fool, fool me once. Can't, Let's can't fool me. Politics out of it, please. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Sorry, sorry, sorry. But no, no, no. But I, I, um, you don't fully understand something until you can explain it to somebody else so that they may understand. Boom. Okay. I got it now. So the, the issue that, um, that I have is like trying to explain that to somebody. It hasn't quite clicked in my mind because we've got things that are, okay. You, you, we don't want necessarily the artifacts of the artist to be, uh, present in the painting. You want all of that so that the viewer of the painting can have an experience of what you're trying to present to them. So it's when you have like this thing that's your, your like your artistic painterly flair, your flick of the brush or whatever, you're like, ah, Zorn, Soroya, Bo, Sargent, like I, a Streeton. I can tell exactly who that is. It, it almost- back and, and, and include Franz Hals. Franz Hals, yeah, yeah, brilliant, brilliant, absolutely. And and so he's the one that started it. Get him. He deserves credit because he's the first one who did it that way. Fair enough. 
it's um i don't know it, it, it it's almost like as an artisan you you've got to get out of the way so how do you do that well let, let, let's go back and re-examine the premise that you just expressed uh this the aesthetic i described before where we want the viewer to not be reminded that what he or she is looking at is paint. We want the viewer to feel that the person, the subject of the portrait, which is a person that they loved, is there alive. Mm. That aesthetic is specific to that type of subject, that type of portrait. For other types of art, you know, if you can make it compelling and painterly at the same time, uh, more power to you. If you can make it work, that's really the only criteria to establish the validity of a technique, a method, a concept, or whatever. Does it work or does it not work? Can you make it work? Now, <clears throat> Sargent is the master, and Zorn, and Soroya, and Cecilia Bow. They were the masters of that painterly manner of painting that was preceded, you know, in the 17th century by Franz Hals. But I personally, for my own work, which is, you know, what my values are only valid for as my own work, I see it as a mistake to try to out Sergeant Sergeant. Sergeant already did that, and he did it very well. And so did Soroya, so did Zorn, so did Cecilia Bow, so did Franz Halls. And I know how to paint that way. I was, that's the way I, I was taught to paint by the best teacher, the only good painting teacher I ever had. Um, so, and I took to it like a duck to water. It worked very well. However, and it's fun to paint that way. I have to say it's fun, but I think, I don't want to be limited to that style, let's put it that way. I'd like to be a more versatile artist, and I, I am a, a more versatile artist, than to just be able to do things in one way very well in that particular way, but not in other ways. Because different subjects really require a different approach in order to really do them full justice. And so uh, I try to just think on my feet when it comes to determining how I should paint a given subject. And each one I regard as a unique entity. And uh, that has worked to my detriment, quite frankly, uh, from a commercial standpoint, because uh, I don't have a particular one single identifiable style that says Virgil Elliott when people look at it, the way Sargent's work does, or Franz Hall's at all. I'm capable of painting in a whole lot of different ways because I'm very old and I've been doing it since I was a small child. Uh, but to me, and it's, it's worthwhile to be versatile enough to be able to create compelling images in more than one way. And the, the painterly way of painting, it would be a good thing to pursue if nobody else had done it before from my perspective, but Sargent was so brilliant at what he did, and so was Zorn, and so was Soraya and Cecilia Bow, that I don't see any, any great point in trying to do things the way they did them, at least not as my main 
thing, my main pursuit. If I'm showing people how to do that, yes, that's that, you know, I know how and I can explain it and I can demonstrate it. But uh, I don't want to be limited to that because there are some subjects that aren't as appropriately treated in that manner. Do you um, do you see any value in doing master copies? As a learning experience, certainly. Mm. Yeah. I've, I've often played with the idea of, of trying to do a sergeant, but I, I like what you said there about, you know, you're not going to out sergeant sergeant. I mean, when you say that, it's like, well, yeah, of course, of course. But I, I, I must admit, I, I do that with some artists. I'm like, I, I, I would love to paint like that. How do they do that? And then you try to emulate that. And, well, and we often it, it's it, when, when I'm, when I'm teaching and, and even narrating things or talking on, on, you know, to my patrons on Patreon, I I'm thinking of like, okay, you know, I started off with the best of intentions of trying to make this very loose and painterly. And then I get that tiny little double zero pointed round out. And then it's like, there goes Tish with the tiny little brush again. And then I just, I kind of stopped worrying about it. I just went, you know what? That's, that's me. That's the, I, I gravitate towards this because that's the way that I paint and that's my expression with the brush. So I'm going to develop that. Um, and I feel that, that by just letting go of that idea of going, no, I've got to paint like Sergeant, because I think maybe there was this thing in the back of my head where it's like, no, that that's the valid way to express yourself with paint. But of course he's already done it. So what are you doing? You know? Well, you should understand too, that Sergeant himself was trying very hard to paint like Sergeant and to make it look like he had done something that was effortless, but he actually put a great deal of effort and, yeah. you know, repeated scraping out and repainting until he achieved the image, the concept for the image that he had, which was that of spontaneity. Hmm. And ironically, he labored very much to achieve the illusion of spontaneity and that's what it really is in more instances than not yeah. and because i've heard descriptions of how many sittings he had to have for this and that particular portrait mm. and uh, he would scrape passages out and start over again until he you know and maybe he'd say oh maybe i needed to use a bigger brush you know to make that you know maybe i should have put more paint on that brush maybe i should have used a knife for this passage to make it look more spontaneous and as if he were standing back, you know, he's like Douglas Fairbanks Jr. fencing in a in a in a swashbuckler movie, you know, with a long-handled paintbrush doing all of this. But he was working very hard to create the illusion that that's what he did. So uh, it's probably not that much different from what you were doing in in, in pursuing that effect. Hmm. It, it, it was a much more conscious intention thing than than totally natural. And that's such an interesting not idea. that i'm old enough to have personal experience there to speak from i'm not right. quite that old <laughs> you keep you keep going on about this uh don't make me ask you how old you are you you make it sound like you're really old you're not that old come on bro come well, on how old do you think i am oh how don't you think don't, I am? That's don't, how old I am. don't do it oh there you go there you go you're as old I as you born feel. during oh. world war ii Okay. Well, yeah, yeah. You're you're same vintage as my dad. That's yeah, it's I'm, fine. I'm 77 right now. Oh, you got ages of, of painting left I'll, in you. That's great. I hope you're right. I hope you're right. <laughs> I'll be 78 this summer. Brilliant. Brilliant. Well, look, um, 
I want to I want to just jump back to um, something that we were uh, talking about earlier, and something that you brought up. You, you'd mentioned Vermeer's name. Now, Vermeer, like Caravaggio, like some of the other masters, I've been quite curious about, and I've heard some things. And and your name did come up in a recent podcast episode that I did with Christopher Remmers. Now, oh, okay, he was one of my students for a while. Yeah, that's right. And uh, and we. I hope we, he didn't say anything bad about me. Uh, no, it was all good. It was all good. Well, no, we're, we're both very uh, fond of you and your teaching. So, good for so, him. Good for him. Yeah. He's a good. He's a good. Good guy. A good artist. Yeah. I no. Think, it, uh, I should say he's the best student I ever had. Oh, fantastic! Well, there you go. There you go. You heard it. You heard it here, Christopher. There you go. Now, he has studied with other people. I don't deserve all the credit for what he's doing. <laughs> but he, he, I asked him, and he did acknowledge that. You know what he learned studying with me was helpful to him. Yeah. He's had other instructors besides, and they deserve credit too, of course. Yeah, don't want to don't want to misrepresent <laughs> my teaching. Well, that's good of you. But um, you know, we were talking about this, and he did mention something when we were when 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 your name was dropped in that podcast uh, about optical uh, equipment used by old masters. And he mentioned that you might have a thing or two to say about that, but he didn't go into any great detail. And then I was intrigued now, now before, before I, you, you go into it, and, cause I'm really curious to hear what you think. I have been contacted. I don't know if I can say this, so I, I might have to cut this out, but I'm pretty sure I'm safe to say this. I've been contacted by somebody that makes optical equipment to and, and and I've been asked to test out a product, and I'm curious to test out this product. And these were the same people that worked on Tim's Vermeer, the movie that came, that came out maybe ten years ago now, um, which was a fascinating presentation. It was a really neat film. Yeah, I, I had a I had a long meeting with Tim when I was in Texas uh, a, a year ago. Fantastic. Okay, I, I'm I'm so curious to hear what you think about this because, you know, I I have. I tell you where it started for me, this whole questioning process, because I got a lot of people just giving me just an insane amount of crap for using a digital projector. Now, before you hang up on me, I'll explain what I was using it for. I, I, I do very detailed, very elaborate digital drawings using this here, which is my, my Wacom tablet. You know, it's still a it's still a drawing because I'm drawing it with a stylus. You still have to be able to draw. There's no importing photography. And I don't want to put that down because I know there are people out there, digital artists who do that. I don't do that. So I still draw on the tablet just as I can draw in a sketchbook, just as I can draw on a canvas. But these, some of these detailed drawings take me up to a week to do. And then I take my design and I transfer that to the canvas. I'm thinking I'm going to get all the details here. I'm going to get it framed up just so, align the edges. So I've gotten zero zero distortion and somebody looked at that and they went aha i knew it you trace everything you do i'm like first of all th there's no photograph that you're going to get to look like my design that's not how i'm doing it but then i said hang on a second my my feeling was is if the technology was available i don't know how you feel about this so i'm probably opening a ton of worms maybe a can of whoop ass but but <laughs> but if the old masters had access to the technology would they not have used it i think they might have go <laughs> Well, first of all, that's a topic that I don't really want to discuss because I am writing a book on the subject and I don't want to scoop myself by revealing my points before I have got a publisher agreeing to publish the book that I haven't finished writing yet. Oh, 
Come on, so, scoop, scoop away. Come on, Virgil. <laughs> well, I'm going to be very careful about the okay. things that I say. I, I, I okay. also, uh, Fair enough. Uh, I'm, I'm hoping to be able to work a little bit with Tim Jennison in, 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 uh, in the future. The, mm -hmm. uh, we had discussed something like this on a couple of other occasions. Um, he and I were both speakers at, at the uh, Representational Art Conference. What was it, 2019, I think it was. And uh, we had discussed possibly collaborating on a few projects. Um, now, I don't agree with all of his points, let's put it that way, because I'm looking at things from the perspective of a highly trained artist. He looks at things from the perspective of a scientist. Now, I understand science also, and I understand the scientific method and the way that scientists approach everything but that's different from the way artists approach everything. Mm -hmm. So I will just say as a hypothetical instance, suppose you are a supremely well-trained 17th century Dutch artist. Why would you even think you needed to look at some other device when you can draw so well from direct observation of your subject? It's easier to just pick up your piece of chalk or charcoal and make your mark and proceed from that point, looking at your subject. Now, Vermeer's subject was essentially a large still life mm -hmm. in unchangeable light, unchanging light, essentially unchanging, north windows in, in, in Holland. So it's indirect daylight, pretty much the same every day, at least you know throughout the daylight hours. The subject is sitting there, not changing at all. Now, any still life painter who's good at still life knows that if you put enough time into painting your still life from direct observation, and it doesn't have any flowers in it that are going to droop and fall apart, it doesn't have any fruit that's going to shrivel up or meat that's going to rot, nothing perishable, just things that are going to stay the same and the light is going to stay the same, you can make that look perfect. Mm -hmm. And if you have an advanced understanding of the principles of visual reality that we mentioned earlier, especially the principle of selective focus, you can make that image look like Vermeer painted it mm -hmm. without any optical device. And this is what an artist should strive for. An artist should not be looking for shortcuts. If an artist has got the ability to do that, and it is humanly possible because that same ability was demonstrated by artists prior to Vermeer, Rembrandt notably, who no one has dared say that he used an optical device of any kind. Mm -hmm because too much is known about Rembrandt. He had so many students, so many people wrote about Rembrandt, including some of his students, former students, that we know how he worked. And there's the only reason people can apply that sort of conjecture, and that's what it is, is only conjecture, all speculation towards Vermeer is that not, not enough is known about him. But that's what differed, how he differed from his contemporaries was he was working from direct observation of a large still life, which is what his studio was set up to be. 
whereas the other old masters were trying to paint scenes from classical mythology and the Bible, and they're working from imagination a great deal of the time. And so, and you know, their, their approaches were different. They weren't strictly working from mannequins wearing clothing and still life objects not moving. You know, I mean, Rubens did not have lions or tigers in his studio when he painted the lion hunt. You know, he didn't have stampeding horses in his studio. Leonardo da Vinci did not have stampeding horses in his studio when he painted the Battle of Anchiari. Uh, so this, Vermeer set up a still life, a large still life in his studio. And to the scientists, uh, in, including uh, Philip Stedman, to their credit, they have analyzed this one painting, the music lesson, and determined exactly where the point of view was of the painter of that scene. And they also, with that, were able to calculate from the reflected image in the mirror the perspective of the entire scene and they, and they determined the dimensions of that room in which that was painted. And they have gone so far, also Tim Jennison did this as well, they have recreated that room to those dimensions. And I visited Tim's at Vermeer Studio replica in, in uh, San Antonio, Texas while I was there. And I want, I'm hoping that Tim will allow me to show him something that he currently thinks is impossible and I know it's not. And that is that he will allow me to sit there at that spot with the easel, with a uh, canvas or canvas panel, primed gray, the way Vermeer did, and recreate that scene from direct observation without using any optical devices. I know I can do it, and I know I can do it convincingly. Now, Tim, he has, he has become somewhat of an artist, but he's still essentially a scientist, and he approaches things from a scientific standpoint, which is much more left brain operated. And I don't want to get into the argument of whether left brain, right brain is, is a valid concept in science, recognized by science. Uh, people want to argue that. Regardless of whether those faculties reside on one or the other hemispheres of the brain or whatever, I know that those faculties exist and they work in different ways from one another. Now, the people who doubt the existence of the right brain faculties are simply people who don't possess them and they cannot conceive of them. And, and that, that is true of a number of scientists. And uh, I think with Tim Jennison, it's, it's beginning to develop somewhat. And we had a long, long talk when I was there. And at the end of it, he says, you've given me a lot to think about. Now I wanna get back in touch with him. And if we can work out the logistics, I would like to paint that scene because there's some things that I could teach him. There's some things I could demonstrate for him. And once he sees me do them, he's got to acknowledge that it is possible. He has expressed the belief, and that's all it is, is a belief. It's an assumption that certain things are impossible to an artist working from direct observation. About that, I disagree because I can do them. So there's no doubt in my mind that they are possible because I can do them and I have done them. And I'd like to show him. But I live in California and he lives in San Antonio, Texas. And uh, there's logistics 
And I have to get his agreement to do it. For what it's worth, I hope this happens because I am so curious about this space. I think we're all going to learn a lot from this exercise. And, and hopefully you guys, you know, you, you document it and, and share that with your followers because, and I, I'll be the first one in line, man, I, I, I will... I will shout that out on YouTube and on the podcast and on every social page that I have. I, I would love to see that. Um, well, I, I'm, I I'm with should you. have finished it by now, but uh, things interfered. The COVID situation yeah, for is, sure. looms large in the interference, plus all the portrait commissions that I've had to mm-hmm. do in order to pay my bills and make a living. Mm-hmm. And uh, and I, I realize I can't wait forever to do this because I'm not young anymore and I don't know how much longer you know my eyesight's going to remain good. Mm-hmm. It's starting to go bad in my left eye. My right eye is still good. It lets me, lets me do my best work. Mm-hmm. But uh, how long that's going to remain, I don't know. Yeah. Uh, at my age, I have to be realistic. Mm-hmm. But uh, let me just try to sum this up. Everything that anyone has said in advocacy of Vermeer or Caravaggio or any of these other people that they have alleged worked with optical devices, it is all speculation. Right. It's nothing but speculation. Okay. A very impressive speculation on the part of Philip Stedman and on the part of Tim Jennison, because they've gone so far as to reconstruct those studios. Mm-hmm. But they're operating from a premise that they are already committed to. They're n- they have not looked at this from the standpoint of a philosopher seeking the truth. They're seeking to validate a concept that they have committed themselves to as their particular belief right so that's that's where they have deviated from scientific method yeah scientific method has you pursuing the truth wherever the preponderance of evidence leads i'm a fan of that yeah absolutely absolutely and and tim has acknowledged that that's 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 valid and and he and i are in agreement on that point and on many points Mm -hmm. i would just like the opportunity to demonstrate to him the points that he is not correct on mm-hmm. you know he was showing me paintings that he did copying vermeer um and he thought that these these were you know valid facsimiles of vermeer and i pointed out to him aspects of them that were not like vermeer in the first place vermeer didn't paint in one layer in full color vermeer did an underpainting and then he modified things as he went so of course that's a different approach of course so that's if you're a, using a if you're using a convex or sorry a concave mirror and you're kind of you know painting around the periphery of that because yeah tim actually painted all one layer didn't he in that film come to think he applied of it there the was colors a, that yeah. the colors that he was comparing from the scene he he had those colors there and he put them on the canvas there yeah or on the board. I think he was painting on a piece of plywood. But in any case, that's not the way Vermeer worked. And mm. I explained that to him. And, uh, you know, he's an open-minded man. And I hope he's open-minded enough to let me follow through with my demonstration. And I hope the logistics can, can you know, fall into place to where it's possible. Mm. I've got to figure out a way to live. Because Vermeer was not a fast painter. He, mm. I, he only produced, you know, maybe two paintings a year. Or something like that 
So he had a lot of time because his subject was not changing. From day to day, it was the same. You know, the clothing was posed on a mannequin, most likely. And the most unrealistic aspects of some of his paintings, at least of the ones where it's alleged that he used this device, uh, the most unrealistic parts of it are the faces and the hands. And that's because there were mannequins and he was probably using his imagination to make the faces, or maybe he had his daughter's pose or his you know, other family members pose, but their time to spend posing was probably quite limited. Right. right. So uh, all of that points to the fact that Vermeer was just painting a large still life and doing it with guided by the knowledge of the principle of selective focus. This is something that very few people understand that. Right. Rembrandt had a student who was from Delft, Carol Fabricius. After he studied with Rembrandt, he moved back to Delft, where the head of the Painters Guild, the Guild of St. Luke's, was Johannes Vermeer. You know, Delft was not a large city. All the artists there, all the professional artists belonged to the guild. They all knew one another. So Carol Fabricius is a possible connection between Rembrandt and Vermeer. Could very well have conveyed to Vermeer the concept, I mean, the principle of selective focus from Rembrandt to Vermeer through Carol Fabricius. Now, Fabricius died young in an explosion that blew up his studio, destroyed most of his works, burnt a large part of the town, killed him, and nobody knows who Vermeer studied with. It might have been Carol Fabricius, or they might have just been contemporaries who compared notes, you know, and, and, and doing, doing uh, shop talk, comparing notes, you know, giving each other ideas. We don't know. If there were no mystery about who Vermeer studied with and how he worked, nobody would be saying he had to have used this particular device. One of the valuable things that Tim brought out in, in that movie, Tim's Vermeer, is he tried Philip Stedman's uh, proposal, the way Stedman, and Stedman wrote a book called Vermeer's Camera. And in that book, he had his hypothesis as to how Vermeer worked. Tim tried that and found it unworkable. So that's one valuable thing that Tim has contributed to this, this uh, issue. But I, I need to bring my points out in the book that I'm writing. All right. But, yeah. you know, and, and, and part of it is, is not just in defense of the human mind and its capabilities as demonstrated by Vermeer and, and other great artists for that matter, but also clear thinking and the concept of fairness. It's really not right to allege that someone did not employ his full mental capabilities to create the works of art that he did that are so wonderfully impressive if we don't know for sure that he did use something other than his own brain and his two eyes and his own hand. And I know it's possible to do it that way. And one of the valuable things about art 
is that it is a demonstration of what is possible for a human being using his mind to the utmost of its possibilities, to the utmost of its development, his human natural equipment, two round eyes connected to a brain. When you think of these as, as machines, an eye is a better machine than a camera, and it's a different machine from a camera anyway. And the eyes are what our, our viewers are going to be using when they look at our paintings. And so what the human eye perceives and the way it perceives it is the most convincing kind of image to create. A camera doesn't do that. Camera obscuras don't do that. Camera lucidas don't do that. An artist who is well-trained and has a good eye and can draw accurately, you can calibrate your brain by practicing drawing and practicing all the exercises that were common in the training of artists in 17th century Holland and previously <clears throat> in Italy, et cetera. The eye can be calibrated to be a very precise measuring instrument, superior to anything else, any machine. And the value of art, as I see it, one of the values, one of the important things about it is, it is an extraordinary accomplishment representative of one mind, of one human being. This, this should inspire other people to aspire to develop their minds to as high a degree. That's an important thing. And it goes against the modern mentality of today where people are always looking for a way to get around having to use their delicate little brain. And a big popular expression today is no brainer, as if to have to use your brain is tantamount to punishment. You know, mental discipline, the word discipline yeah. has a connotation now with punishment rather than just self-control, control of your own mind. But the mind has capabilities beyond which the average person bothers to develop. And I think most people have potential in their own brains that they have never realized simply because they're not motivated highly enough to develop those faculties to the highest degree possible. But I, I want to encourage people to do that. I am an advocate of the human mind. And the old masters exemplify what is possible from the human mind. Every work of art is the product of a mind, a human mind, not a machine. And it shouldn't be the product of a machine. And to whatever extent it is the product of a machine, in my opinion, it is diminished as far as a work of it being a work of art. Oh, that's my position on it. Okay, so Virgil, does this mean I have to throw away my Wacom tablet and delete Photoshop immediately? <laughs> you want to upset me? You're drawing on the Wacom. I'm drawing. Right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm you're drawing. being guided by your own mind. Yes. You're not tracing a photograph, right? No. Okay. You're but, still drawing. But you're drawing. I, I, I take so that you're not drawing. drawing with charcoal or chalk, but you're still drawing. I'm drawing with a but, drawing tool. But I your take mind that is guiding. Your mind is what's guiding that stylus, is it not? Uh, correct. Yes, it so is. That's, so that's that's valid. Oh, fear. 
<laughs> Excellent. I mean, you know, don't don't let my opinion influence you. No, you, no listen, you. man, you're you're making me sweat over here. I'm I'm stressing you know, out. I've got all guiding. Are you being guided by a photograph, or is it your mind, your sense of aesthetics, your artistic sense that is guiding your hand that is holding that stylus on your Wacom? I've got a reference pack of like uh, dozens, if not hundreds of photographs, but they're more or less just signposts that signify a particular memory. And I'll go, mm -hmm. well, I like that waterfall. I like that rock. I like that tree. Mm -hmm. I like the overall, but there's no, there's no one picture per se that's like, right, I'll paint that one. It's, it doesn't work like that. It's so like- you're no, getting I, visual cues from your reference material. Exactly, you exactly. Know, that's, I, I recognize that as valid. Yeah. You know? So, so the, the, I guess I mean, you main... know, before cameras, artists generated their own reference material. Mm -hmm. You know, Claude Lorraine would go out with a blue paper, and he would draw on blue paper, draw the scenes, and make notes. I've seen these notes on blue paper. He'd draw the scene to get get the design, and he'd he and he'd write in there what colors things needed to be. And and uh, you know, uh, Frederick Church, you know, Albert Bierstadt. They would go on location and they'd bring a photographer with them to photograph the scene, or at least, at least uh, uh, Church did. I'm not sure about Bierstadt, but uh, they would create small paintings from direct observation of the scene to record all the colors and things. Then they'd go back into the studio and put together a design that had pleasing composition and the colors that he recorded there and, and whatever notes. Maybe they did some drawings too. Maybe they would consult some of these photographs as well to help jog their memory from what they had observed. And then they would paint these large, very impressive paintings in their studio. But they're ge generating their own reference material. And in the course of doing that, they're also logging information into their, their memory banks that is there for future reference. It, it's a better way of working than just copying a photograph. Okay, that that that's interesting. I, I think it would be a bit of a it would be a crime here to uh, to have you on the podcast and not talk about some of the, you know, the more technical things that I since really going down this road, I've had just a barrage of emails and comments on social media and all sorts of stuff, people asking a whole bunch of technical stuff. And I, I, I keep just passing them going okay look I, I got a lot of this from virgil elliott go and follow him traditional oil painting on the facebook page go and get his book you know have a, have a look at that now last time we spoke it was it was out of print at that stage and you were looking at getting it reprinted is it back in print now this oh. is the current edition yeah it, it's still up to date it, it came out in uh february of 2019 Brilliant. A new new publisher. That's Echo Point Books. Brilliant. And here is where people can buy it directly from the publisher. I will put a link to that it. in the description. I'll put a link to that with okay. the show. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. And uh, there's also a video. Perfect. And that's where there they can go. get the video. In okay. fact, they can get the video and the book from right. this same company. They're well, selling them as a set as, as well. Uh, I'll tell you what, Virgil, if you just go ahead and you email those links so to me, I will include the, them with the show. Okay. And this, this is the Echo Point edition of my book. This is the one that I recommend people get. Now, the old, the previous edition 
actually it went through five different editions or six, excuse me, different editions uh, with minor changes from, from uh, along the way. Uh, and those are still available as used books at extremely high prices on Amazon and through various uh, uh, used booksellers. I recommend that people not buy those. Buy the new one because the new one has information in it that was corrected from the previous edition. Okay. Not anything necessarily major or world shaking, but still important. And, uh, you know, I don't get any money when used books are sold. It's <laughs> a shame. I've seen the, the prices new one, on some I get of a little bit. You yeah. know, I'm not getting rich off of that book by any, any stretch of the imagination. But uh, I wrote it to help people learn how to paint well, understanding that so many people who want to be good artists were really uh, not provided with the training that they sought when they signed up for college and university art classes. Yeah. And I wanted to make up for that. Mm -hmm. I, I took, after I got out of the army, uh, I was 21 years old and I went to, I took art classes at colleges and universities and uh, they were all crap to be quite brief in my assessment of them. And I recognize that that is just wrong. They're taking people's money and they're not giving them what they're paying for. And I want to change that. And so I made a vow to myself at the time. I will, I mean, I was already pretty good of a painter, but not as good as I am now and not as good as I wanted to be then. But I said, if I get to be as good as I want to be and feel like I can be helpful to people, I will make sure that people will be able to learn what they've come to these schools to learn. If they can't find it from anybody else, I will be able to teach them. And so that's what motivated me to write my book, which I started writing in 1985 at the urging of my, my students. So I think I explained that before in the previous uh, interview. So I yeah. don't need to waste too much time on that. Well, it, but it's, it's important. And I think, um, you know, th th that reflects my experience exactly. You know, I, I went to an art school, which was a tertiary institution. They didn't teach any technique, any technical knowledge, whatever. Um, and what I really should have gone to is an atelier or master artist studio and just spent time and soaked it in and, and actually spent time in technique. Instead, what we learned was concept and it's totally invalid. And consequently, you know, having got out of there with a degree in fine art, in terms of being a professional artist, I've never been asked once for my qualification in art. Your qualification is evidenced by your, your portfolio. What can you do? And I got out of there not being able to do anything. You know, in fact, I'd probably gone backwards as a result of that, that program rather than forwards. And it took me a, a few years to recover. And in fact, I'm thinking about making a hat or a t-shirt that says uh, artist recovery program or something like that, you know, um, or recovering art student. <laughs> yeah. Well, you learn to paint and draw as well as you do. And it's very well independently of that school yeah. and yet when people hear that you went to that particular school and got a degree from it that school is getting credit for having taught you nope. and they don't nope. deserve the credit nope i don't because ever mention their name there i but never there will be that assumption in the minds of some people and they'll think <laughs> oh that's an endorsement of that particular school because look how well their former student andrew tischler 
can paint. Listen, so Matt, it's not I fair. Tell you what, I it's tell not you fair what. to the people you really did learn from. Hang on a second. Hang on a second. I tell it's you what, credit I got, where credit is not due. I got to be careful because I think I might have a potential lawsuit on my hands. I don't ever mention their name in my online content. Well, few, it's just as well. A few people, a few people like know where I studied it. I guess it wouldn't be too hard to work out, but I just want to say if anybody is listening from there, hi. <laughs> don't get a real job uh there's a lot of bitter people i don't want to mention the schools i went to either they don't deserve any credit oh uh, yeah no it's shocking i mean i had a good time uh, you know it was, it was great as a as a university experience but it was um it, you know looking back I, I could have saved the money and the time and, and nowadays, especially, I mean, the, the amount that kids are paying for college is insane without really a road to, to go to or something, oh, yeah. a, a direction that's going. Anyway, we don't want to get caught in the weeds on that. One of the things that I learned from, from your book and, and from following you online, as I was saying earlier, was getting the zinc out of the palate, getting the lead in there and starting to think more consciously about how I built an image with the you know, the quality of mind, the, the, the quality of the product for the end user, but then the archival quality of the painting. I started becoming mm -hmm. obsessed with, I want this painting to be around for a good long time. So I need to do some things here that, that I'm not doing in the studio and, and actually pay some attention, pay attention to this. So the use of mediums became important. How I use varnish became important. But let me ask you this. What would you say were some of the things that, that you know, because you obviously get a lot of these questions as well. What are the, some of the things that the art, artists and art students these days are doing that if they just changed a handful of things, they could actually have a better experience painting and the work that they're producing would actually last a bit longer? Because some of it deteriorates very quickly just from doing the wrong thing. Well, there are a number of things. Uh, I don't know if we discussed this before. I can't remember everything, but uh, the very popular common practice of painting on stretched canvas is one thing that limits how long a painting is going to exist. Because canvas made out of cotton or linen, it's good for about 100 years. But as it ages, it loses its strength it starts out that it's what's holding the painting together. After about a hundred years, the paint itself is what's holding the painting together. And because the canvas has lost its strength, uh, it usually starts to rot around where the edges are on the, uh, the wooden stretchers, because there's acid in the wood and that acid is, is accelerating the rotting process. Now, if whoever owns the painting after it's a hundred years old, deems it worthy of restoration, then that painting has to be taken to a competent restorer. And not all restorers are competent. Some of them will ruin the painting. The best of them will be able to save the painting. And it won't necessarily be really expensive, but it might be depending on how far it has deteriorated and, and how well the artist chose the materials to work with in the first place. Cotton canvas will probably not last as long as linen. Uh, but the way conservators treat a canvas that is deteriorated is they glue the painting, they glue another canvas on the back of it, a newer canvas. So, you know, that's not something that 
the average layman is going to be able to do, it's got to be taken to, you know, to be able to do right. It's got to be taken to a professional conservator who is competent and experienced. If that's done wrong, it can screw things up. They have to know what the best adhesives are to use. Ideally, they should be equipped with a uh, heated vacuum table, which costs many thousands of dollars. Uh, you don't want a low budget guy to try to do this. So painting on stretch canvas is not the best thing. Uh, if we like the texture of canvas to paint on, which I do, then a better idea is to paint on canvas that is glued to a rigid panel. And ideally that should be glued to a rigid panel with a reversible adhesive, like the, the adhesives that are used by uh, uh, painting conservators at the museums, um, BEVA, call it BEVA. Anyway, BEVA uh, 371 is currently a popular heat reversible. You know, it's a, it's a colloidal substance, semi-solid until it reaches a certain temperature, 140, 150 degrees Fahrenheit. Then it becomes liquefied. And, and so th they use a heated vacuum table to stick these things together and they turn the heat off after the right temperature has been reached at which the uh, adhesive has liquefied and then they allow it to cool so that the adhesive can uh, set before they open the, uh, the machine and take the painting out. Uh, you have to be equipped with the right de devices, the right materials, the right experience in order to be able to do this correctly. Um, I have someone do this to my panels to make, I've, I've made some of my own. I don't have the vacuum press. I worked out a way through trial and error to uh, attach canvases to, uh, to, my, to wooden panels. Uh, these days I'm, I'm having my canvases glued to uh, honeycomb aluminum panels. Uh, my friends at uh, Natural Pigments in Willits, California, they have a heated vacuum table and I'm having them prepare my canvases now and gluing them. These are lead primed linen canvases and I'm having them glued to uh, uh, honeycomb aluminum panels. Brilliant. With, uh, Beva 371. So the, the idea of reversibility is that at some point in the future, if the panel becomes damaged and restoration becomes necessary, that canvas can be removed from the panel by applying the, the right amount of heat to soften the adhesive without damage to the canvas. And then it can be glued to a new panel or to another canvas or whatever the current uh, uh, level of technology in, in the conservation field recommends. But that leaves the door open for future conservation of the paintings. So that's, that's one thing is, you know, Painting on stretched canvas is really uh, problematic in a number of ways, with one possible exception. Once, that would be polyester okay. canvas. Polyester okay. canvas doesn't rot the way uh, uh, linen and, and cotton do. Okay. Uh, as, and it, it doesn't, it, I mean, it is prone to being degraded if it's exposed to ultraviolet light. But the assumption is that there's going to be a backing on the painting protecting the back from ultraviolet light and a layer of paint covering the front to protect it from ultraviolet light. And if that paint has lead in it, uh, lead white, 
I'm possibly lead primer, preferably lead primer, that's going to prevent any effect from ultraviolet light. So uh, if you need to paint a very large painting on stretch canvas that you then want to roll up and ship to some other part of the world, um, polyester canvas is probably the best material to do that with. Let, let me let me ask you just so you said before and okay so that's one of the fundamental changes that I made almost immediately in my practice was painting on rigid surfaces so I, I, I started doing that I started using well I still was using the linen either Italian or Belgian linen but adhered to a, to a panel the other one that uh, that I really enjoy using shout out to Ray Aslan I gotta say this is copper painting on a copper panel oh yes you know and that that they have been a joy to paint on um and uh you know whether it's a lead primed or just painting on the copper after it's been kind of buffed up a little bit with either steel wool or a light sanding um i really enjoyed that but you were saying okay so not all of us have access to the beva 371 but i i'd love to try that i don't have a hot vacuum table so i'm not sure how to get it up to that temperature but if I was to make these things at home, and if somebody listening to this podcast was wanting to make uh, rigid supports, what glue could we use that you might be able to buy? Is there anything that would be acceptable that we would have access to, or is this really specialty well, stuff? My uh, late colleague from the ASTM subcommittee on artists, paints and materials wrote a book. That's Mark David Gottsigen. Mark Gottsigen. Uh, he uh, recommended a method in his book. His book is called The, the Painter's Handbook. And uh, it's, it's one of the few books I can recommend uh, that deals with painting materials and uh, you know, in general art materials. Uh, Mark was a very astute researcher and, and had a very scientific mind. And so he outlines a procedure in his book, which I do recommend that people get, and it's available as an inexpensive paperback from uh, Watson Guptill Publications, uh, the Painter's Handbook, and get the most recent edition, the revised and updated edition. Mark died a few years ago, but the information in it, most of it of which is still uh, valid, still good information. So he recommended using acrylic gel medium as, as the uh, adhesive for adhering uh, canvas to rigid panels, wooden panels. And using a, a rubber brayer, working from the center out to get all the bubbles and lumps out of it. And, and then, you know, he'd, he'd say put a big heavy piece of glass over the top and put a bunch of heavy weights on it, big books and things like that until it dries. Uh, the, the difference between that and using the Viva is that it's uh, not really reversible are not as easily reversible if it should ever need to be reversed. But there's a good likelihood that it's probably good for several hundred years without needing any sort of uh, uh, repairs anyway. So um, the only downside to it is, as I say, it, it's, it's not reversible, but it's a valid way of doing it. And uh, for people who are, are, you know, in places in the world where the materials are limited, uh, you could even paint, you know, they just about everywhere, even in Ecuador, where I, I, I taught some workshops in Ecuador a few years ago. And the art supplies that get to the art supply stores in Ecuador are very limited because they're uh, 
government regulations down there and customs and so on uh, have discouraged most manufacturers other than the big manufacturers like Windsor Newton from even bothering to try to import things to that country. So there's limited availability. But even there, you can get these pads of canvas, textured paper or canvas, cotton canvas or polyester canvas and paint on those. And if it turns out to be your greatest masterpiece, you can glue it to a piece of uh, tempered hardboard yourself following the method that's prescribed in Mark Gottsegan's book. Uh, not a difficult thing to do. I, I'm not familiar with acrylic gel medium, though. I mean, so that's... Um, acrylic gel medium? Well, just, yeah. a lot of companies make acrylics. Uh, the company that, if I were to use any acrylic products, um, the company I would have the most confidence in would be Golden. And mm -hmm. I don't, they don't pay me to say that, but I know the people there. Mm -hmm. uh, in fact, one of my former students works there, too. But, but uh, these people are on the same ASTM subcommittee on artists, paints and materials that I am on. I know that they are very astute scientifically. They do experiments. They don't give you bad advice. If they know it's bad advice, they're not gonna give it to you. Let me put it that way. Um, they test things out and they're very, very intelligent people. And it's, you know, it's not a, a major conglomerate company like a lot of these other companies that have been bought out by large corporate entities. Um, it's a family owned company and I know the people and I wouldn't endorse their products if I didn't think they were the best. So anyway, just wanted to make sure that there's, there's, you know, they're not paying me to say that they're not giving me any free stuff. This is just, their stuff is good. Now, Liquitex is, is another uh, brand that has uh, an acrylic, I'm pretty sure they have an acrylic gel medium and it would probably serve just as well. Now I'd have no personal experience with it. So I want to make sure everybody understands that. Okay. But Liquitex, when I needed to use acrylic products before Golden was available, um, I was using Liquitex. Uh, I didn't, I don't recall ever having used any gel medium from them, but I, I think the materials that go into it are sound and I would have confidence in them. What about PVA glue? Is that problematic? No, not necessarily, but it's, 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 uh, it's been tested and it's not quite as effective as the acrylics, according to the tests that yeah. some of my ASTM subcommittee, uh, colleagues have, have, have done. Uh, it's satisfactory, but I would say it would be second in line rather okay. than at the very top. For sure. For sure. Okay. Few, few. I've okay. used it and I've used it successfully. I'll say yeah. that. Okay. I, I have used Lineco um, neutral pH PVA. Um, a PVA normally has an acid pH and that should not be used. That's what Carpenter's glue, Elmer's glue. That's, that's PVA, it's not buffered. And so it, it has an acid pH and it will cause canvas to rot if you use that to glue the canvas to a panel. But Lineco is buffered. In other words, it's got uh, calcium carbonate mixed in with it to uh, neutralize the acidity in PVA. So I, and I have used it with good success. 
I, do you know what I'm thinking about doing right now from here on out is just like mixing the, a pinch of bicarb soda into my PVA glue and carrying on. <laughs> I mean, well, you could do that. To, you know, you, you'd want to use uh, litmus paper to do tests to see that you have achieved neutral acidity. Because yeah. if you go too far and it becomes alkaline, uh, that's caustic as well. So yeah. You, yeah. you have to be scientific. Mm. You know, lye is an example of, of an extremely caustic alkali. Yeah. If you put lye on some paper, it'll eat a hole in it. Or if you put it on, on a canvas, it'll eat a hole in it. Mm -hmm. So uh, you have to balance it to be neutral pH. Yeah. So if you're just putting something in it to make it more alkaline, uh, that is less acidic. If you put too much in it, then it becomes alkaline and it's still caustic or potentially mm. caustic, depending you know, on the, a number of other things, but on how much you put in it. So you'd have to measure it. You'd have to be scientific about it, bottom line. So better to just buy it from the company that makes it that's properly, uh, properly neutralized. Now, my I, friend, I, Ross Merrill, mm. I will say, Ross Merrill was the chief of the conservation department of the National Gallery in Washington, D.C. He was my good friend and also a, uh, he was also a member of the ASCM subcommittee on artists, paints and materials. And he himself, uh, he's a, he was an amateur painter too, he's dead now, but he was an amateur painter too and, and, and pretty good. But he would use Elmer's glue, PVA, but he would mix powdered calcium carbonate into it to neutralize the acidity before he used that to glue his canvas to his panels. So if you can't get the line co-product and you want to use PVA and you can't get the acrylic gel medium that Mark Gottsegan recommended, then, you know, if you can get PVA, try to get some litmus paper so you can determine just how acidic or how, how base it is, that is, you know, how alkaline it is and add enough calcium carbonate to it that you get a neutral pH. Okay. Then you can use that and, okay. and, and it will probably last, you know, several hundred years if you do it right. Brilliant. I'm going to run some experiments and, and we'll, we'll have a go with this. So we, we've got, the, we've got the, the structure down, the base of the painting. And okay. now, now, we're going to, now we're going to start all kinds of crazy things, do all sorts of terrible things to our painting, and it's not going to last. So, so what are the, the other things that, that artists that you see by and large are doing today with building up that painting that leads well, to the, these the next disasters? Thing, after you've got the canvas considered, uh, there's sizing. The, 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 the canvas has to be treated with something to reduce the absorbency so that when you put your white lead ground on it, which is the only ground that I recommend using for an oil painting, that the linseed oil in that ground is not going to soak into the canvas fibers because that linseed oil has amino acids in it, the key word being acid, and those acids will rot the cellulose fibers that uh, comprise the... Uh, the canvas. So traditionally, rabbit skin glue is what was used, and that was the best material to use for that purpose for many years. A weak, a weakened rabbit skin glue, not full strength, but you know, diluted down to a, a weaker strength and applied evenly if it's done expertly, which seldom it is anymore because there's not many people alive that are expert at doing it. But uh, that, that material is no longer the best material to use. It was always problematic because it's hygroscopic. 
you know, it's made from melting the hooves of animals or boiling the skins of animals. It's animal collagen. It's like jello, gelatin. And uh, so it absorbs moisture from the air and that changes its tension. It, it undergoes rapid rates of expansion and contraction to such extremes that it's been identified by scientists, Marion Mecklenburg for one, uh, as being largely responsible for a lot of the cracking that we see in old oil paintings that are done on stretched canvas because it changes, makes the canvas grow slack sometimes, grow really tight sometimes, depending on the relative humidity. And it loses its strength entirely above 75% humidity, relative humidity. And so it's not the best material. It's been tested uh, by some of my ASTM colleagues and uh, against all the other materials. And what, what performed the best for uh, sizing materials were uh, various acrylic mediums thinned with water to uh, a, a thin enough consistency to serve as a si size. They outperformed PVA in that regard. That's one of the things that's changed in my book, the new edition of my book, uh, because that testing was done after the first edition came out in which I was recommending PVA. Um, PVA properly done, it will still work, but it doesn't seem to be working according to the tests that were done, which were very thorough tests. Uh, it doesn't work as well as the acrylic mediums. So I would contact the people at Golden. They're very good at giving their current recommendations to people who contact them. Uh, I think Sarah has now retired, as, I, as I've been told. Sarah Sands was very good, very astute. And uh, uh, Gregory Watson, Greg Watson, is working there now in that same capacity. And uh, Greg studied with me many, many years ago when he was very young. <clears throat> and uh, you can trust what they tell you from time to time because they're doing ongoing testing from time to time they will come up with a new recommendation that is even better than what their previous recommendations were that's why i say contact them to get the latest word but you can trust what they tell you they, they won't blow smoke at you just to get you to buy their products they'll tell you the truth tell them i said so no, very, very good. Uh, that, won't, that won't be an influence. They, uh, uh, they will tell you the truth if you ask. Very good. Very good. But the acrylic products. So, okay, now we've got a canvas. We've got sizing on it. Now mm -hmm. we've got to put a ground on it. I think we discussed this in the previous one. A white lead ground bound with linseed oil. That is the best ground for an oil painting. The reason being, it is now known from scientific testing in recent years, that basic lead carbonate pigment in a painting produces lead soaps that migrate through the paint film and add physical strength, structural strength to all the paints in the ensemble. And wow. it helps them to dry better and faster. No other substance used as a painting ground does that acrylic primer incorrectly called acrylic gesso it doesn't do that a traditional gesso made with animal glue doesn't do that titanium white in an alkyd binder does not do that titanium white in a linseed oil binder doesn't do that that is a property that is unique to lead white 
So this is why I recommend for the ultimate in, in uh, longevity of oil paintings, paint them on a white lead ground. Okay. And that will give strength to all the paints used. The paints have different chemistry from one pigment to another. They have different properties. They interact with one another, but none of them has the structural strength of lead white. That is the most ideal oil paint from a film forming standpoint. Mm -hmm. And it imparts those same qualities to the other pigments in the painting, even the ones that it's not in direct contact with, because it's now known that these lead soaps migrate through the paint film. So that's unique to lead white. So from there on, you can make a bunch of other mistakes and probably your painting is still gonna last pretty long. But if in the next stage, you're beginning to paint with paint on top of your ground, lead white and linseed oil should be the basis of any underpainting that you do. And if you wanna tint that with other pigments, tint it with pigments that either are relatively lean and fast drying or that have a very high tinting strength so that you don't need to add more than like this much, say Mars black or Mars brown to a pile of white lead about this big to tint it a, a medium gray. So that it's consistent, essentially it's, it's white lead and, uh, and it retains the same uh, ratio of oil to pigment as the white lead itself because what it's tinted with there's such a small amount in there that it doesn't really alter the ratio significantly. So I, I get a lot of questions and a lot of uh, comments and observations from people. And I have experiences myself with, uh, you know, the sinking in of oil into the surface, which results in a very patchy appearance, you know, mm -hmm. from either matte to gloss and back again. And it's, I can explain be, that too. Yeah. Yeah. It can be very distracting. Um, and I, I, I have been using, I still use uh burnt umber, but I understand that that can be a little bit problematic. So that's, so, that's the worst pigment for, for creating sinking in is, is burnt umber. It's not right. the only thing that causes it though. Uh, right. Also thinning paints with a solvent, turpentine or, or uh, mineral spirits, odorless mineral spirits, spike oil, any of those things that weakens the paint film and makes it uh, more absorbent. In other words, it sucks more of the oil out of the paints that are applied on top of that layer. Mm -hmm. And so that creates these dry appearing patches. Another cause of it is uh, uh, some acrylic primers. Uh, now, again, referring to my ASTM subcommittee uh, colleagues who did testing of various grounds, they found that there was a wide range of quality in acrylic grounds, especially the ones that you see on these pre-primed -pre -pre canvases, pre-stretched, pre-prepared canvases that you buy at, at the uh, Hobby Lobby or Michaels or, or any of these art supply stores that wanna make it easier for artists who don't wanna make their own supports. They just go there and buy a canvas and start painting without putting any thought into it um, as far as you know how, how sound a surface it is to paint on. They just go in with the assumption, oh, this is good. Well, some of those are the absorbency of these are uneven. Some areas will be more absorbent. 
absorbent, some will be less absorbent. And the more absorbent areas are going to suck more oil out of the paint that's applied over them than other areas. And then if you've got several of these factors at work, somebody's painting on a pre-primed canvas that was cheap that they bought someplace at a store all ready to go and it had a poor quality uh, uh, acrylic ground on it with uneven absorbency. And then they're starting their painting with burnt umber thinned with turpentine like so many instructors tell people to do. That's, that's two things, that's three things already that are contributing to that. And then they're going ahead and using burnt umber and maybe raw umber too in the, in the painting that they're, they're doing on top of this layer. Uh, then they're adding some glossy medium to their paint that creates really shiny patches. And so you've got really dry passages in some place and really shiny patches some other place, passages, and they don't work that well together. Now, and when you go to varnish the painting, if they're going to varnish it, some people don't even realize that it's important to varnish a painting and they leave it unvarnished, which is a mistake uh, from an archival perspective, from a long, long range performance, I should say, not archival, that's not really the right word for any of this. But, uh, you know, long-term durability it is compromised in a painting that doesn't have varnish on it. If you varnish the painting, the varnish will help to even out those disparities between the dry spots and the, and the glossy spots. But uh, it may require extra varnish on the spots that are more absorbent. Because if there's a lot of burnt umber in there, it's like kitty litter and it soaks up everything that gets in contact with it. And it takes a lot to get it to the saturation point to where it, it, it no longer reads dull. So you may have to add more varnish and more varnish and more varnish to those patches to create a gloss that is, you know, more or less even throughout the painting. But but is there any uh, any archival or longevity issue with using the umber in and of itself, or is it just an aesthetic consideration? Well. Getting back again to scientific testing, uh, one of the discoveries that uh, Marion Mecklenburg and his, his, his colleagues, Marion Mecklenburg was the senior research scientist at the uh, Smithsonian Institute uh, um, Museum Support Center for many years. I think he's retired now. Very astute scientist. Uh, one of the things he discovered in his testing, long-term testing of oil paints, uh, was that the behavior of burnt umber because of its, its clay content, primarily anyway, uh, it has a tendency to shrink and swell as it absorbs moisture from the air, similar to what I was talking about with rabbit skin glue, which isn't necessarily even made from the skins of rabbits, but that's just what they call it, it's hide glue. But anyway, uh, burnt umber and yellow ochre were identified by Marion Mecklenburg from his experience as paints that contributed to the cracking of old oil paintings. Because it, when the humidity rises, those burnt umber passages with burnt umber or yellow ochre, both of which have a certain amount of clay in them, absorb moisture and swell up. That's the nature of clay. It, it's particles swell up when they're saturated, either with water or with oil. And when they're dry, 
they shrink. So this is creating an instability in the paint film that can contribute to the cracking of an old oil painting. So I, that's another reason that I don't use mm. umbers in my artwork anymore. Or, um, or ochres, or ochres, have you gotten rid of the ochres too? I'm, I'm using Mars yellow instead of yellow ochre for most, uh, most of the passages where I need that color. The main right. difference between them is that the uh, uh, Mars yellow is very high in tinting strength, much higher than, than uh, yellow ochre. Uh, so, okay. And so it's, it's a bit more difficult to manage. And I also use Mars brown in conjunction with perhaps <coughs> bone black, excuse me, uh, where someone else would use uh, burnt umber. Right. But, so, uh, so, so the bone. Wow. Okay. So, what? Is, what is the um, man? I'm really geeking out. I've got like nearly a page of notes <laughs> here. I've got a nearly a page of. Notes. I'm just like I'm writing this stuff down. Um, it's in my book. I, I know, bro. But I mean, come on. This is also good for people that are okay. Good for people that are listening to this. Um, because you know, you know what it's like as well, Virgil, I'm sure. I mean, well, maybe maybe you're not like this. In fact, that's probably why you wrote the book on this is that you don't, you don't, you probably don't get stuck in a particular mode. I do. And then I make those adjustments and then it's like, and then I'll, then I'll keep there. But then some of it would be, I, and I, I end up sometimes forgetting where I heard stuff. So I need to make, I need to make like the, the I, I need to be all in at this point. So I'm really, I'm really thinking about this more and more and more. I, I tell you what I'm going to do right now. I'm going to immediately change my palette up a little bit. And there'll be some people listening to this going, what, what are you talking about? I just bought that palette. How dare you? But I'm going to start introducing this more, the Mars yellow, the bone black, the Mars black. Um, what is the, the, the constituents of that Mars color. Where does that pigment come from? What's the nature of that pigment? How do they make iron it? oxide? Iron oxide. Okay, fantastic. Um, it, 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 they don't fade. You know, they're the, they're equal with the natural earth colors in their mm. light fastness. They are the ultimate in light fastness. They Brilliant. don't fade. They Brilliant. don't fade. Now, and, and, and the natural earths don't fade either. It's just that. The Mars colors differ from them in that they're synthetically created from iron oxide, so there's no clay in them. So that they don't have this expansion and contraction uh, taking place with changes in humidity. So they're superior in that respect. Uh, and they have a much higher tinting strength. So if you mix them with a bit of lead white, then you get all the structural qualities of lead white in that mixture. And because the high tinting strength of the Mars colors uh, goes a long way in a mixture with this much lead white and this much Mars brown or Mars black. Uh, now, I don't use Mars black except in underpaintings, by the way, because it's, it's opaque and it's, it's high tinting strength. It's very difficult to manage in the color stage. In the color stage, I use bone black, which is what we used to call ivory black and what most companies still call ivory black. It's not made out of ivory and so it's really made out of burnt bones, usually burnt chicken bones, uh, so far as I know. But, um, you know, a natural pigments uses the right word when, when they have that pigment, they, they, they honestly call it bone black in their right. Rublev paints. Perfect. That's their, their oil paint brand that is put out by uh, uh, natural pigments. 
So, right. um, and that's that's the term that I use is bone black. Excellent. So uh, now getting back to and more answering of your other question, what kind of paints we choose to work with also has a bearing on on how long our painting is going to last before it starts changing into something else. Uh, my preference is for oil paints that have no stabilizer in them. Uh, yeah. Paint companies add various substances to their paints to keep the oil and the pigment from separating in the tube mm -hmm. because artists who buy it, painters, I should say, who buy it, open the tube and they squeeze it. And if oil comes out, they think that that's a bad quality product. It is not actually, not necessarily anyway. Uh, it just means that the manufacturer did not go overboard adding stabilizer to it. So it's just a matter of, you know, soaking out the excess oil on a paper plate or a business card and then transferring it to the pellet. And then when you get to the other end of the tube, uh, if you get it where there's not enough oil, then you add a bit of linseed oil to it and mix it in very well on the pellet. So that's the right painting consistency. The old masters were not painting with paints that had aluminum stearate in it as a stabilizer. And they were not painting with paints that had uh, uh, hydrogenated castor oil, also called castor wax, in it as a stabilizer, which is what some, some companies use for a stabilizer. Most of them use an aluminum stearate or some other stearate. Used in moderation, it's probably all right. But I prefer paints that don't have any of that. And now there's one company that does make those paints. And that's that's uh, Natural Pigments, the Rublev brand. And... Uh, and that's that's why I prefer that brand for the colors that I use that they that they have. Uh, other other brands are pretty good too. That that uh, they use a little bit of stabilizer so far as it seems to me, but they don't go overboard with it. Hmm. Uh, I I've, I had an in depth conversation with Eric Silver of Blue Ridge Oils, and I I love the Blue Ridge Oils. I haven't ever tried his paints. He lovely paints, I got to say, and a great guy too. And so he's got a small operation in North Carolina, but um, he he's yeah, and, and it's it's pretty much all I use. Although I have recently experimented with the palette of the Rublev, and I loved those. I, I painted a couple of portraits in my portraits workshop um, that were that were with the Rublev palette. And, and really enjoyed those too. And it's my understanding after talking to Eric that he uses just the smallest amount of stabilizer in there. And I said, hey, look, I've, I've talked to Virgil Elliott and I, I'm concerned about this. What's in here kind of thing. And, and he kind of put my mind at ease. He's like, yeah, there's some, but it's not, it doesn't go overboard. And in point of fact, when I am squeezing out those tubes, um, there are a few colors where the oil does drain right out of there. And, and I have to do like what you're saying. I, I just squeeze it out on a paper towel and then reincorporate mm -hmm. it as, as necessary. But yeah, I, I, I speak very, I, I really think the world of Eric and, and I really do love his paint. Um, I need to try his paints. I, I, I have never tried them, so I, I, I can't comment on them. I've I'll get heard him, good I'll things get about him. them also. I'll get him to hook you up. I'll 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 reach out to Eric. Okay, I'll, I'll buy say, I'll buy some from him. I I don't want him to just send me some free stuff and expect me to endorse it because he's <laughs> given it to me for free. I'll pay for it and I'll give okay. an honest evaluation of it. Good. Man. I want to I want to say I want to clarify one point because I did mention a brand. I do not endorse any particular brand entire mm -hmm. line of paints. I go by color by color. 
-hmm. And the criterion that I use to judge the quality of paints are light fastness. Yep. And the, you know, whether it has stabilizer in it, and if so, how much and what kind. And what the binding oil is. Mm -hmm. It should, linseed oil gives you the strongest paint film. I consider walnut oil acceptable for multiple layer painting in the final layer and for um, painting in, uh, in one layer, a la prima. Mm -hmm. But um, those are my primary criteria. Okay. So okay. Uh, I don't, I, every brand has got colors in it that I won't use because they won't meet all of my criteria. Okay. So I, I want to make sure that I, people don't think that I am just promoting one particular brand and that they can just assume that everything that they buy from that company is going to be top-notch stuff. Yeah. Just about every company I know that makes oil paints has alizarin crimson in it. And so I can't endorse alizarin crimson no matter who makes it. Yep. Yeah, exactly. Because I've tested it plenty myself, and I know that it is not light fast enough. It's light fastness on the ASCM uh, scale is either three or four. Sometimes it comes in on three, sometimes on four because it's close to the border and there are certain variables involved. But that's not acceptable light fastness. By the ASCM standards, what's acceptable is light fastness one or light fastness two. Anything below that is considered fugitive and, and, uh, and not acceptable for pro professional level paints. Mm -hmm. Virgil Elliott, listen, man, I could talk to you for hours and hours and hours, and, and I always learn so much uh, from you. And again, thank you for the wonderful book. Thank you for that Facebook page and providing a place for us to learn more about oil painting. Uh, it's just amazing. It's a real treasure and just such a treat to have had this opportunity to talk to you again. So thank you for being on The Creative Endeavor. Well, thanks for thinking of me and, and, and putting me on so that I can reach more people. You know, if I can help more people become better artists, that, that, uh, that's important to me. Well, thank you so much for tuning in to another episode of the Creative Endeavor podcast, episode 50. I still can't believe it. It's pretty cool. And a huge thank you and a shout out to Virgil Elliott. Thank you so much for joining me. Now, right now, as I said, way up front, you're going to find a link to the video that Virgil's put out through Lilladoll Productions. You'll find that in the description that accompanies this podcast, as well as the new edition of his book, Traditional Oil Painting. You'll find that in the description as well. Check out Virgil's work there, but also make sure you sign up to that Facebook page, Traditional Oil Painting, moderated by Virgil himself. This is a wealth of information here. So if you've got a technical question when it comes to the material science behind oil painting, maybe you've put the wrong medium in there or you accidentally painted acrylic over oil and oh my gosh, what are you gonna do in that circumstance? Well. There's a great community there on that Facebook page, and I'm continually referring to it. So check that out. Traditional oil painting, you can search that on Facebook. Now, if you enjoyed this episode of the podcast, then please do me a huge favor and leave me a rating or a review on whatever audio platform you're listening on. 
I keep saying this in every episode of the podcast, but I really appreciate your effort there in doing that. This really helps put the podcast out there in front of more people. And I couldn't do it without you. So thank you so much. And while you're at it, if you could also share this on your social media, I would really, really appreciate it. I'm going to get out of here and get back to painting. It has been such a pleasure hanging out with you here in the studio. And I'll see you again very soon in another episode of The Creative Endeavor.